gathered at the mountains, the high point of Exodus, and this passage is the high point of gathered at the mountain. And the content of this passage echoes throughout the scriptures again and again and again. You may not have picked it up. And so it's actually been the hard thing about today's message is knowing what to say and what not to say. And because there's so much that could be said. And so it'll perhaps be maybe a bit of a heavier talk than I like to give them. You might think all my talks are too heavy, but I'm just giving you a pre-warning. But it's important because it really does echo. So let's pray. Father, help us to understand your word, not just intellectually, Lord, but how... Help us to understand your plans and your purposes and how we should adjust our daily lives to those. Even as we look at your word now, we ask, in the name of Jesus, amen. Well, I love Jesus' beatitudes. They're cryptic, short sayings. I like them because they invite contemplation. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. You've got to think about these things and ponder them. And that this, then we have this one. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. What a promise. The pure in heart will see the invisible creator, the almighty, the Lord, what a promise. But then you compare it to other parts of Scripture's teaching. For instance, in Exodus chapter 33, the Lord said to Moses, I want to see you, Lord. I want to see you, Lord. The Lord said to Moses, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. You're sinful, Moses. You're not pure of heart. Isaiah the prophet Isaiah has a vision of the Lord in the temple and it's glorious and it's wonderful and it's fearful. And Isaiah's response is, woe to me, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, not pure of heart, and I live amongst people of unclean lips, not pure of heart, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty, woe is me. You know, most of us, most people, if you say you're a good person, they say, I am, almost everybody says, yeah, I'm a good person. Basically, I know I do something wrong. I'm a good person. But I say to most people, are you pure of heart? My thoughts, always. My intentions, my motivations, pure of heart. Blessed are the pure of heart. For they shall see God. Here's the reality, I think. 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. The Lord will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. Shut out. No glory. Gone. Gone. For those who are not, here's, the, here's, the, here's the, um, the beatitude. Cursed are those who are corrupt of heart, for they shall be shut out from the presence of the Lord. And so we have this dynamic in Scripture that runs throughout, this dynamic of distance and separation from God because of our rebellion and our rejection of him, and yet God's presence, this promise to be with God, 
relating to God. This tension, and it's certainly evident in the passage before us in Exodus 24. And in Exodus 24, this tension is unresolved. What we have in this passage is a foretaste. We see something of the pattern of ultimate resolution, but not in reality. You see, the pure in heart shall see God, but God must first act to cover over their wickedness and their corruption, to cleanse them, to make them pure and make peace. We are in this last talk of our series gathered at the mountain. God has saved his people Israel out of slavery in Egypt and under Pharaoh. He has called them into the wilderness and then called him to himself as a nation around this mountain, Mount Sinai. And they gather there and he says, you're my holy people, you're my treasured possession. You're a kingdom of priests. And God gives them the ten words, these basic principles to live before him, the ten commandments we call them. And then there's three or four chapters of detailed, detailed law on how they are to live when they enter the promised land. And then God reaffirms his promise, says, you're coming down, we're not staying here, we're going into this promised land and I will go before you. But you have responsibilities when you enter to obey, like Eric was suggesting earlier. And then chapter 24, today's passage, the covenant, these promises, this new relationship, it's sealed, it's secured. It's a little bit like a wedding day, this chapter. There are actions performed, there are symbolic symbolic actions. And statements, there are words stated, and, and these promises, this, this, this relationship that God brings them into is sealed. It's done. And in this ceremony, this wedding, if you like, ceremony, we see this drama of separation from God and yet presence with God. How is it possible for Israel to draw near to their God who has saved them? And it begins, like everything in Exodus does, almost everything in the Bible does, it begins with God's gracious call. God calls. The Lord said to Moses, come up to the Lord. That's myself. You, not just you Moses, but Aaron, my brother-in-law, that he's the priestly man, Nadab and Abihu, his sons, and 70 of the elders, 70 of the leaders of the people. And you're to worship at a distance. But Moses alone is to approach the Lord. The others must not come near. And the people may not come up with him. God says, come on, come on, draw near, draw near. Come, 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 come. Bring others with you, Moses. These 70 and Abu and his sons, the priests and the leaders. Come and come, come and worship me. But only so far. You see, this is a fearful thing. Back in chapter 19 where we started our series, Mount Sinai was covered with smoke. The people are gathered. Because the Lord descended on it in fire, the smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace and the whole mountain trembled violently. At the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder and Moses spoke and the voice of God answered him out of this fearful mountain. Now the Lord's saying, come on, come up, under this fearful quaking 
mountain. And Moses, you will be the intercessor. You will go before the people. And there will be separation. We still have this sense of separation. We have three levels of separation. You've got the people at the base of the mountain, the vast bulk of Israel. Then you've got 70 of the leaders plus these representative priests from this one family and Moses, the leader, the mediator. Uh, and then Moses gets closer still. Three levels of separation. All representing God's people, Israel, who gather around the mountain. His people, his treasured possession. This separation, it's kind of the pattern of humanity. When we were in Japan and we'd go into various Shinto or Buddhist temples, you'd see it. You'd enter the temple, you as a visitor, as a tourist, you'd walk in only so far. And maybe those who were serious would get a little bit closer and then the priests would get a bit closer still to whatever it was in that shrine. Um, you'd see it in cathedrals in Europe as a tourist. Whoa! And then, but only so far. Because only the priest goes up onto that altar. This is part of humanity, this separation from God in his holiness. And we see it here at Mount Sinai as the covenant is sealed. When Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice, everything. Here's the covenant. Everything the Lord has said we will do. And Moses then wrote it down. There's a record. Everything the Lord had said. <clears throat> Let's do this. Let's make this covenant. We'll be the people. We'll seal it. We'll put it in writing. It's a big day. But you guys, because you go to our approach the Lord, you guys go up for us. Because, you know, go ahead and represent us and worship on our behalf. Be there up the mountain for us. And this separation. But, but how is this going to happen? Because only the pure in heart, the pure in heart shall see God. Well, Moses begins the work of necessary preparation to draw near to God. They don't just race on up. You know, it's like, again, a, like a wedding. You prepare for a wedding, for these covenant relationships, the ceremony of covenant sealing. You organise rings which symbolically show unity. You plan your vows, your word promises. You organise a space, be it a church or whatever. And then you have special clothes which often have symbolic value. So you need to prepare for this covenant to see God. Moses got up early the next morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and set up 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. This altar represents all the people and sacrifice. And he sent young Israelite men and they offered burnt offerings and they sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in bowls and the other half he splashed against the altar. <clears throat> the altar upon which fire would be lit, a holy symbol of holiness, particularly in Exodus. This fire for these sacrifices on the 12 pillars of the altar representing the 12 tribes of Israel, all the people. And on this altar, the covenant is symbolically sealed through a blood sacrifice and fire. Fire for holiness and cleansing. Blood sacrifice. It talks about a burnt offering. In a burnt offering, the whole beast is consumed by the fire. It's all committed to the Lord. 
as a consecration and it represents what we call atonement or a covering of sin. In the fire, the sin penalty is paid for in that beast, in that beast's blood. There's a commitment that precedes that because we have to give the whole beast. And symbolically, there is purification because the sin's been dealt with. It's also fellowship offerings. Fellowship offerings, well, you're actually cooking the beast. So it could be eat, can it be eaten amongst the people? And, and the fellowship offering says, okay, the, the sins have been forgiven, there's been purification, but actually now we celebrate because it's, it's, it's okay between us. Between us and God and with one another, it's okay. There's peace. There's fellowship. They're symbolic actions. They aren't the reality. It's a bit like having a white wedding dress. It's a bit like lifting the veil before the kiss. It's a bit like the rings to indicate unity. Here we have a sacrifice to pay for sin, that it's okay now. But it's not just symbols, there's also vows and commitments. Then Moses took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. They responded, we will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. This covenant's being sealed in symbol and in words. It's initiated by God, do you see? God starts this covenant. It's sealed by the blood of sacrifice and words of commitment. And it's not just for those guys going up the mountain. It's for all the people and then verse 8, Moses then took the blood and sprinkled, or you could translate, scattered abundantly it, scattered it abundantly on the people. Oh, thanks, Moses. And he said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord... See, this is God's covenant. He's doing this. This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all of these words we've just read. There are the preparations the cleansing, the fellowship in blood. And now it's time to go mountain climbing. It is time to draw near. Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders of Israel went up. And then one of the most amazing verses in the whole Bible. Verse 10. They went up and they saw the God of Israel. Under his feet was something like a pavement made of lapis lazuli or brilliant sapphire, translate, as bright blue as the sky. It's miraculous. You cannot see God, who is holy and pure and radiant and other spirit. But as they draw near, the scripture is clear, they see God. How, how is that? How can they see God? In fact, all we get here, they were told they see God, but all we get is a description of the pavement. It's perhaps like you've been invited to the White House to meet the president, and someone says, what was it? Well, the lawn was fantastic. It was very green. Perhaps they are flat on their faces and their senses are just overwhelmed with something like sapphire blue, pure radiance. And as if to draw attention to the absolute 
wonder of this miracle, the very next verse, verse 11. But God, they've seen God. But God did not raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites. They saw God. And they ate and drank. How are they still standing? Are they pure of heart? But not just standing, they're not just standing, they're actually reclining. They're eating and they're drinking in fellowship with the Almighty on the mountain. The covenant is being sealed over a meal, as they often were, in the presence of God. And this is worship. This is worship at the mountain. This is salvation. Israel has drawn near to God so as to see and to sup with him. God and man at table are sat down. What a wonder. But, as glorious as that is, we still have this dynamic tension. They draw near, but they stay at a distance, except for Moses. <clears throat> it's actually hard to know what happens next. It's likely they all go back down the mountain and then Moses is again called up, this time with Joshua, his bag carrier, his protege, his aide. Aaron and her, Aaron went up, Moses' brother-in-law, the priestly guy who will be the priestly guy. He goes up and he's put in charge of this older guy, her, in charge of all the people back at base camp now that Moses is gone. Moses goes up and he's about to receive the Ten Commandments inscribed in tablets of stone. Two copies to take. Now, since the very start of Exodus, Moses has been getting closer and closer. Or God has drawn Moses closer and closer. He starts with a burning bush in the wilderness at Mount Sinai. Just a bush of fire of God's holiness or you're on holy ground. Then they approach the mountain which is burning with fire, and God speaks out of the mountain to Moses. Then he's called up with the seventy elders and the priests, and they eat and drink with God on the mountain. But now God invites Moses into the very depths of his holy presence, into his glory, into the holy fire, and he alone is lost from sight. When Moses went up on the mountain, the cloud covered it. And the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. For six days the cloud covered the mountain. And on the seventh day, you've got to be patient, Moses, the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. To the Israelites back at base camp, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. And then Moses entered the cloud as he went up on the mountain and he stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Moses enters the glory of the Lord. He enters the holy fire and he is not consumed. We have this pattern in this passage of God's gracious call to draw near to him the necessary preparation before that can happen, God's miraculous presence. And then Moses alone enters the glory. So we have still 
the mountain represents this division. Moses enters the glory, enters the holy fire. The elders and others get so close and they eat and drink and they see God and back at base camp, they're the people being represented, kept at a far distance from what is going on. Can you see the tensions unresolved, this distance and this imminence? We still have a huge separation between the people and their God, but we do have God's presence and a representative of the Lord in that presence. And what about the sin issue, the rebellion issue? Where's that? Well, you know, I'm led to believe that at a wedding, uh, a white dress at least traditionally represents the purity of the bride for her husband. Symbolically, it represents that, but I wonder at times, does it really represent that? Is that the truth? A ring represents unity between the new husband and wife, really? Will they be bound together that close? Here we have the symbols, but what's the reality? There is unresolved tension under the law of Moses for all the people of God. The symbol is one thing, and the reality is often something very different. The tension of this mountain paradigm is about to go with the people as they leave the mountain and head to the promised land. See, from this point on, the mountain is actually replaced by a tent called the tabernacle. In chapters 25 to 30, which we're not going to, and you'll be glad we're not going to them, because they're boring. They're all about all these details about right worship and how to build this tent and how to do things around this tent. There's to be a sacrificial sacrifices made. There's to be priestly mediators. And God's glory in this tent as they travel through the wilderness to the promised land is represented by a box called the Ark of the Covenant, which holds the Ten Commandments. The mountain has become a rectangular tent. There's division. The priest can go right into the middle of the box, one priest once a year. The people are on the outside, but God is present with them and God's glory descends upon the tabernacle. Chapters 35 to 40, the last five chapters of Exodus, basically almost repeat all this detail. And again, it's pretty boring reading because it's just like, ah, this, this be this long this and they to do this and that for us it's boring reading because we're all such a long way separated from it they're moving the people in the wilderness and Mount Sinai moves with them as a tent with its three levels of separation in between those two boring descriptions of worship and tabernacle construction is a story section and it's a story of during the 40 days. Moses is up the mountain 40 days, 40 nights. He's getting these Ten Commands. Representing the people. He's in God's glory. Meanwhile, Aaron and Hur are in charge of the people back at base camp. And the people say, hey, let's make a God for ourselves. And Aaron says, who's seen the glory of the Lord? Yeah, let's make a golden calf. Come on, let's get all of our gold together. And, we'll make, and they make a calf. To worship as if it was the Lord. Their hearts are not pure, they're corrupt. 
They disobey. They rebel. And it's only been 40 days since the covenant was sealed. 40 days since the elders and Aaron and his sons ate and drank with God and saw him. 40 days since they were, this covenant was sealed in blood. Now they eat and drink before an idol, a false god. One party has failed in their covenant commitment and it is not the Lord. It's a little bit like 40 days after the wedding saying, sorry I cheated on you. I didn't think it would matter that much. They're corrupt. They're not pure of heart. Their only saving grace is the Lord himself who does not treat them fully as their sins deserve. Yes, there is a measure of judgment and Moses mediates for them, but God graciously reiterates his covenant. And I think that's why you get the second description of all the tabernacle and worship stuff. It's another start with another copy of the Ten Commandments that Moses goes and gets. We get to the end of Exodus and this tension between separation and distance and presence is not resolved. So you've got the tent. Cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, no longer on the mountain, and Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Even Moses, you keep your distance now, Moses, as the mountain becomes a tent. But, but I'm here, represented in this tent and this box, with you, but stay away. For I am holy and you are impure. And eventually the tent becomes a temple on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. And the separation continues. The tension remains because we're still under the law of Moses. The people are outside. There is no effective mediator. Oh, there are priests that go in once a year. There's no dealing with sin. Yes, there's lots of sacrifices of animals made, but the sin problem is not dealt with. There is presence and there is fear and there is separation. If we are to draw near to God and see him, we need a pure heart. And that is beyond our capacity. That is beyond your capacity. I'm a good person. I'm sure you are. Now tell me about the purity of your heart. We cannot make our hearts pure. But God in his grace provides for us. And the law of Moses is just a pattern. It reveals to us the tension of that our sin causes us in relationship with God. And it sets us up, this tension sets us up for resolution. And the resolution is found not in the law of Moses. The resolution is found in not you being a good person, not you following laws, trying to prove how righteous you are good. That was, does not resolve the tension. It just makes it worse. It just highlights the tension. The tension is resolved in the good news of Jesus, the gospel. Where the law failed over sin and death and the devil, the gospel conquers. Where the law revealed our corrupt hearts and exposes us and condemns us, 
The gospel of Jesus covers us and cleanses us and saves and renews. God calls us today. Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The call of God comes to us, but we don't come with the call of God doesn't draw us to Mount Sinai and to the law of Moses. It doesn't call us to a tabernacle or a temple or some sort of holy space like this, which is a pretty pathetic holy space. It doesn't do that. The gospel calls us to, we did this a few weeks ago, but it's worth repeating in this series. If you've heard God's call, you've come to Mount Zion, that is, to the city of the living God, that is, the heavenly Jerusalem. And you've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly as you've responded to the call of God. You've come to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven, God's people. You have come to God himself, the judge of all, and to the spirit of the righteous who have been made perfect. You've come to those who have been purified. You've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. We gather around Jesus and his word and we commit obedience to Jesus. We covenant with Jesus as we've almost symbolically done through communion. Fidelity to him based upon his work for us. And we find cleansing. The preparation's all been done for us. And it's finished. To go back to that passage, you've come to God who calls us the judge of all. You've come to the spirits of the righteous that have been made perfect. Not that are perfect by their own efforts, but have been made perfect. That is, we come to Jesus, the mediator, the mediator for us, the one who goes before us of a, not the old covenant, but a new covenant. We come to the sprinkled blood. Ah, all that blood thrown on the people, but the sprinkled blood of Jesus shed for us that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel, cleanses us, makes us pure to go to 1 John. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another as Christians in church and the blood of Jesus, God's Son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, I'm a good person, or will we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us? But if we confess our sins, Lord, I am not pure of heart. Lord, I've done many things. He is faithful and he is just and he will forgive us our sins and purify us. How much? From all unrighteousness. Blessed are the pure in heart. They're going to see God. This is the promise of the gospel again. I told you there's too much. Hebrews chapter 10, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to go up the mountain, since we have confidence, it's actually tabernacle language, but that's okay, we'll use mountain language, to enter the most holy place, the glory. How? By the blood of Jesus shed for us. By a new and living way opened to us through the curtain that is his body which was slain for us as we remembered in communion. 
We have confidence, and since we have such a great high priest over the house of God, that is Jesus, our true mediator, who is so much better than Moses. What can we do? Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart. Let us draw near and with full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Jesus is better. By faith in him, united to him by faith, by taking him as Lord, we share his perfection, his purity of heart. And blessed are the pure in heart in Jesus, for they shall see God. We'll have that miraculous presence. With God in Christ, we, we enter the glory. John chapter 1, the word, that is Jesus, became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us, the word of God. And we have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God, says John, but the one and only Son, this is Jesus, who is himself God and is in the closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. As we see God, we see, see Jesus. As we come to know Jesus through his word, we see God, Jesus himself. So anyone who's seen me has seen the Father. Oh, the miraculous presence, the glory. And one day we'll be glorious, more glorious still. But not only to see, but to sup, to eat and drink, to have fellowship and peace. We did Pano Life Food Frenzy last week, if you were here. And we saw there's so much food imagery in the Bible because God is drawing us into a relationship of peace and joy and celebration and righteousness and goodness. Last week, Julian reminded us, as he was leading, of this promise in Isaiah. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples. A banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people, the sheet that covers all nations, he will swallow up death forever. Curse gone, judgment gone. And the sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. All nations, so none are excluded. All pure of heart. In the end, not before a quaking mounted, but as it says at the end of the Bible, we get invited, we get called to the wedding supper of the Lamb who was slain for us. The wedding supper. You have this truly covenantal meal. A promise and a commitment of love fulfilled in relationship and joy. A feast that lasts forever. See, there is resolution of the tension. And God has done everything for us in his son Jesus and the choice, the choice about entering that celebration of seeing God, well, it doesn't lie with our efforts, but it does lie with our response. 1 Timothy chapter 2, For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. There is one mediator. One mediator. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. 
No one comes to the Father except through me. He says, if you've seen me, you see the Father in that same passage. James chapter 4. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Your choice. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded, which you can only do in Christ. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Repent of your sin. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself. There's the big thing. Before the Lord, before the Christ, the Saviour, and he will lift you up. Seeing God, a feast of peace is really just a matter of knowing Christ and accepting his sacrifice as our priest, saviour and Lord. So I'm just going to leave one last verse with you. There's been a lot in this talk. I'm going to leave this verse with you as an appeal, as a claim, as the hope of salvation and renewal that you too might see God and feast and enter into his glory. Jesus says in Revelation chapter 3, Here I am. I stand at the door. I stand at your door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice, if anyone hears my call and opens the door for me, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me and you shall see God. And you shall belong and find your place in his family. Amen.